You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. So our two speakers this evening are, first of all, Dr. Eliana Cusato. She's the Marie Sklodowska Curie Postdoctoral Fellow at the Amsterdam Centre for International Law. I had the pleasure of meeting Eliana a few years ago when I was asked to commentate on a paper of hers at an Institute for Global Law and Policy workshop at Harvard and I'm very pleased to see that her first monograph is forthcoming with Cambridge University Press later this year and that's going to be called The Ecology of War and Peace, Marginalising Slow and Structural Violence in International Law and I'm sure it's going to make a big impact Eliana when it comes out. Our second speaker this evening is the inimitable Valeria Vasquez Guerrara, who is a PhD candidate at Melbourne Law School, where she also teaches in the um, Melbourne University Breadth Program, which is an interdisciplinary undergraduate teaching program. And Valeria teaches and researches across the fields of history and theory of international law, transitional justice and post-conflict institutions. And her most recent published work, um, I think, was in the London Review of International Law, focusing on the role of international law in um, cultural institutions of post-conflict state, focusing in that piece on memory, museology, memorialization, and the idea of truth. So um, I'm sure I could say more about the importance of the seminar series. But I think I'll actually leave it to Valeria and Eliana to tell you about the genesis of the series and give you some background to its establishment before they each speak about the truth commissions that they have respectively been researching. Oh, th thank you, Sandhya, so much for your generous introduction and your support. Um, so a bit of a background to the series. So Eliana and I met um, back in 2018 um, in a conference um, where the, well, the, the conference um, main theme was law and facts. And at that time I had just come back from doing fieldwork in, in Chile specifically, well, the fieldwork on that, on, on which um, the article builds on. And Eliana was also presenting um, her work on the Liberia and the Sierra Leone Truth Commission. So when we started talking, we just realized that we had a shared concern and um, urgency about truth commissions, but in particular as international lawyers about the need to take very seriously the role of international law um, when truth commissions engage with it and what sort of narratives about violence, about history, uh, and very importantly about victimhood that, um, that they produce and especially in the global south. So that sort of brought us together and well, that was a different world, but um, then through Zoom, we just decided to um, create a conversation. So thank you very much for your interest. So Eliana will now speak about more broadly about the urgency of the topic. Yes, um, so yeah, hello everyone. And thanks Sandy again for the, the generous and kind introduction. Um, so as Valeria mentioned, um, of course there are different reasons to have this uh, conversation now. Um, so for one thing, COVID-19 has put everything upside and uh, for better or worse. And we thought that this, uh, from a very practical point of view, um, would uh, the situation would offer the opportunity to have a global conversation on transitional justice. And in 
invite, of course, participants from around the world, as uh, Sanya uh, mentioned before. And uh, we are very proud of having really um, eminent scholars uh, from uh, different regions of the world. Um, in societal terms, uh, uh, we also have noticed how in recent years, people um, also around the world are increasingly questioning certain liberal values such as uh, accountability, liberal democracy, the rule of law, good governance, and the relationship to social and economic inequalities, which COVID-19 has exposed, if not um, uh, exacerbated. And so this raises a number of questions for uh, the um, transitional justice field. And also um, uh, the idea that transitional justice has been involved in shaping the quality of life in different parts of the world, and particularly in the global south, uh, which is the place traditionally associated with um, global and transitional justice interventions, even though um, we also noticed uh, more recently uh, calls to establish similar mechanism in the north and Sandia referred to the uh, Victoria uh, Third Commission, but also we uh, can think about uh, um, the idea in the US to establish a transitional justice mechanism to deal with institutional racism and discrimination. So uh, we thought this was a good moment to reflect on these developments and, um, and also in terms of academic uh, debates, uh, we also noticed that there is a growing literature in international law taking less if we want less orthodox approaches to uh, transitional justice and challenging uh, assumptions in the field and so we, we we wanted we thought that this series could be the opportunity to bring people together uh, and we are really um, uh, really proud to have so many amazing scholars that actually uh, are part of this growing uh, scholarship in international law and transitional justice to push the conversation in different directions and also establish new research collaborations, uh, which is particularly important for early career scholars such uh, like me and uh, Valeria and myself. So those are, let's say, the reason why we decided to have this. Yeah, and just to <clears throat> finalize a bit this introductory section, we just wanted to um, really thank um, Ila, and Sandy Pahuja, and Connor Foley. Connor is the center administrator, and he has been responsible for doing all the magic around registration um, website. So it, this wouldn't be possible without Connor and obviously Sandia's support, and also to uh, the Amsterdam Center for International Law, to its director, Ingo Bensky. Um, for his support as well. And as you've seen in the red, in the website, we are using a wonderful cartoon made by a South African artist. His name is Zapiro. So I, we really want to encourage you to check out his work. It's really, really um, provocative. And finally, well, just thank you everyone for your interest. We were really overwhelmed and um, thank you. We just hope that you can um, take part of the conversation later in the Q&A. So today um, I will be speaking about the first United Nations run Truth Commission, officially named the Commission on the Truth for El Salvador. This Truth Commission was created in 1992 within the scheme of the Chapultepec peace agreements. Um, these agreements were signed between the Central American state of El Salvador and the guerrilla of the FMLN. Um, and with these agreements, both parties formally put an end to the country's 12-year civil war, which took place between 1980 and 1992. This is formally. As a scholar of international law with a particular concern for the 
quality of state-society relations in the aftermath of violent conflict, what interested me in the first place about Truth Commission was their multi-sidedness. And I'll show what I mean by this with this map. So the map shows how, although the mandate and the scope of each Truth Commission varies, countries vary, histories of violent conflict vary, Truth Commissions have become an international and internationally recognizable and importantly accepted institution to conduct an investigation and deliver an authoritative account of past violent events that occurred in a specific place and time. What is interesting and telling about the multi-sidedness of Truth Commissions is the post-Cold War international context in which they began to proliferate around the world and became until today a preferred institution to conduct what is a highly sensitive investigation. As many as you know, the 1990s in the post-Cold War context was significant across the world, but in particular, it was crucial for El Salvador because the role of international institutions, in this case of the United Nations in the peace process and later in the post-conflict period, the UN um, monitored the implementation of the agreements until 1995. So this role was not only about putting an end to the, to the civil war, to bring about peace to the country so that Salvadorans could live in peace, but it was also about using El Salvador as a model in which international laws promise of peace, democracy, and economic development could be realized in the global south. And the 1990s opened an opportunity to realize this. So what I'm interested in specifically is how uh, the UN Truth Commission created and deployed an account of the Salvadoran War that was not only lawful according to international law, but that would also have to fit the UN's vision of how an internationally accepted post-conflict state in the global south should be or should look like. What is important about this is how the UN's Truth Commission account of the war, of the Salvadoran war, had to satisfy a particular international lawfulness. So on the one hand, the Truth Commission account um, claimed to be the truth for all Salvadorans, but at the same time, what the Truth Commission account was doing was rendering irrelevant for El Salvador's post-conflict, then present, now future, the accounts about the socioeconomic circumstances that led to and sustained the civil war accounts that if you pay attention to them, contest the international framing that that civil war was solely driven by Cold War rivalries, or you know, many have called it a proxy war, which that is part of the story, but it's definitely not all of it because at the heart of the Salvadoran civil war um, was a long Salvadoran struggle for more equal state society relations. So to show this, I will juxtapose the account of the war um, represented in this Salvadoran tapestry that you're seeing now against the Truth Commission's account. And while both the Truth Commission report and the tapestry record um, the Salvadoran civil war, they do so in different ways and with different aims. They are representing two rival accounts about the war. The UN does that with the authority of being a fundamental institution of um, international law, and the Salvadoran woman does it as a survivor of a peasant community that was specifically targeted during the war. In this case, um, the United Nations Truth Commission's account of the civil war is one that international institutions actively promoted and still promote as the comprehensive representation of the war. 
and is authorized as such by international law as an objective and universal truth. And in contrast, this tapestry and other tapestries are seen as cultural objects that only offer a subjective, um, inaccurate, somehow imprecise account of the civil war. Juxtaposing the tapestry's account against that of the Truth Commission shows how they bear competing aims, not only about ways of remembering the past, that is the violence of the civil war, but also about the present, about the post-conflict state society relations. So although the UN Truth Commission was exclusively um, comprised by non-Salvadoran um, truth commissioner, and that was done, truth commissioners, sorry, and that was done to um, in an attempt to guarantee an impartial account of the war, the truth commissioners um, created and deployed an account of the war that was informed primarily by two orientations. One is an occidental, but mostly US-centric triumphalistic Cold War position. For example, this can be seen in how the report's introduction specifically states how communism encouraged the war, but then remains silent or somehow ambiguous about the role of the United States in funding for many years, the Salvadoran military. And this, by the time that the Truth Commission report came out, this was well-documented. The second orientation um, is the UN's developmental rationality towards the global South. And in essence, as many of you here already know, this developmental rationality was and still is oriented by the 1949 Truman view um, that states in the global South like El Salvador were underdeveloped, but they could achieve development with the help of developed state, which had, and this is in Truman's original articulation, the technical knowledge about how to achieve development. The problem with that developmental view, as many others have shown, including um, Sandy Pahujas book is that the report framed El Salvador as a place of nothingness and in doing so it erased from the official account of the war Salvadoran's very rich history of resistance to the same violence that the truth commission was meant to account for. That framing of the truth commission on the other hand presents the UN and its experts as the saviors of El Salvador without whom they're without um, which without their expertise El Salvador will remain in violence, lawlessness, and in different forms of moral darkness. And this can be seen in different parts of the report, but I will only highlight one. The report's title, as you can see, which is From Madness to Hope, is quite telling. The crucial aim of any title is to frame a reader's interpretation of the text that they are about to read, the main body of that document. The report title is framing how to remember the civil war as the outcomes of the party's state of madness or irrationality. And on the other hand, to see is inviting the reader to see the new post-conflict state as the outcomes of the party's, um, and this is in the report's language, um, rational decision to reconcile, which is conducive to a hopeful future, as, a, as the title indicates. So in doing so, the title construes the history of the war as a developmental story of progress. And as many have shown before, developmental interpretations of history and the portrayal of non-Western peoples as underdeveloped or irrational are not only have a very, um, very strong historical connotation, but importantly for this matter, they're underpinned, underpinned by racist and colonial rationalities. 
In this way, the report's title works to identify the civil war as an internationally unlawful event and to publicly justify the UN's authoritative intervention, which the UN, as I mentioned before, took up the role um, as the international organization that would administer the rebuilding of a lawful Salvadoran state and in doing that, undo the lawlessness of the civil war period. But the title doesn't do all the work and the UN's assertion of itself as the savior of El Salvador can be seen in different parts of the report, but especially um, in its introduction and the epilogue. So here um, the reports, um, sorry, yeah, the, um, the commissioners in the report assert that before the peace process, El Salvador was a lawless place. And they even go beyond to explicitly claim that it was the UN's um, secretary, then Javier Perez de Cuellar, um, who was the hero who had heard the Salvadorans' outcry for peace, ignoring again the efforts of Salvadorans and social organizations and a big solidarity network as well, um, who had been working for many years um, to end the war and live democratic, in, lived in a, meaning, in a meaningful um, democracy and they were all doing this by peaceful means. The truth commissioner's way of seeing El Salvador um, as a lawless place deploys an image of it as Shane Chalmers would put it as deficient of the rule of law and therefore of needing occidental rule of law to make Salvadoran post-conflict state society relations lawful. But as Kate Storr in her book argues the international order one perceives is radically determined by the place in which one stands. So the report's representation of the war not only shows the truth commissioner's developmental gaze towards El Salvador as an underdeveloped and lawless place, but it also, as Manderson states, it reveals the imagery and the vision of the world that has generated. What makes this tapestry especially relevant is that the, the tapestry's account powerfully pushes back against the post-conflict legal ordering that the Truth Commission account promotes and deploys. The tapestry is a Salvadoran woman's response to the Sumpul River massacre in which over 300 Salvadoran peasants died or drowned um, while the Salvadoran and the Honduran army attacked them. And they were, these communities um, were especially targeted because of their organized resistance to the state and to the Salvadoran elite's socioeconomic exploitation and under suspicions that, were, that they were also supporting um, the guerrilla. The tapestry was handmade in the 1980s while the woman who created it was living in what started as an improvised refugee camp, improvised out of that event. And then the UNHCR, um, well, help them to, um, to bring to channel um, resources for them. And the, the camp was located in, in the neighboring country of Honduras. So this massacre was 13 years later recorded um, in the Truth Commission's report. At the bottom of the tapestry, the woman stitched, as you can read, this is a story that we the peasants have lived in which many brothers drowned because of their repression. The tapestry, unlike the Truth Commission's report, does not represent the violence of the civil war as the outcome of lawlessness. On the contrary, the tapestry shows how Salvadoran state society relations, both during the war and after the signature of the peace agreements, were not lawless or unlawful, but were organized according to a particular international lawfulness, which is still dominated by racial views towards the global south. 
views that are now represented in the language of development, peace building, rule of law promotion, or human rights standards. On the one hand, the tapestry shows what I've just said in two ways. On the one hand, it shows how the lawfulness of state society relations before and during the war could not be separated, as the Truth Commission report attempts to do, from the Spanish Empire's colonial laws and administration, which racialized, exploded, and exploited and marginalized Salvadoran peasants and indigenous peoples to benefit a European origin minority. On the other hand, being before the tapestry brings the Salvadoran woman's lived memory to the present, which by being made visible refuses to be an image of the past. While the Sumpel massacre was perpetrated in the 1980s against specific peasant communities, the tapestry nowadays still speaks to the children and the grandchildren of peasant and indigenous communities that historically and during the war were at the receiving end of the violence and now are deeply affected by contemporary situations such as mass immigration and urban gang gangs, which again, international law and its institutions see as problems of development, rule of law, or good governance. But yet there's strong evidence that suggests that these contemporary problems have very deep roots. The tapestry's representation deploys an image of injustice that the UN's Truth Commission attempts to, but cannot contain. The tapestry compels its contemporary viewers to ask how the Truth Commission and its developmental and racial view of El Salvador's apparent lawlessness could craft a comprehensive account by rendering irrelevant for El Salvador's future, the truths of state repression, of socioeconomic exploitation and marginalization, and importantly, Salvadoran resistance to it. So when I encountered the tapestry, this image um, had a striking, striking, striking resemblance to contemporary images of Central American migrants crossing borders. Despite that, the tapestry and the photos narrate different events that are separated in time and place. Their striking resemblance shows how the tapestry continues to account for the ways in which Salvadorans keep dying and risking their lives while crossing borders to flee from El Salvador. But nowadays, Salvadorans are not fleeing from the civil war, but from the so-called post-conflict state in which, which doesn't use grenades or bullets against Salvadorans, but, but it uses international finance and promoted post-conflict state building institutions like truth commissions, which promise peace, democracy, and development, and ultimately, in the case of truth commissions, truth. Thank you. Thank you very much, Valeria, for an incredibly rich presentation. I'm sure many questions will flow and a very moving uh, juxtaposition of images um, let us turn to Eliana now uh, before we open the discussion to the floor to hear your presentation, please. Thank you. So in my presentation, um, I will discuss how the Truth Commission in Sierra Leone and Liberia have contributed to the production of a specific narrative about the conflict in those countries by examining how they constructed the relationship between global extra extractivism and violence. Um, I will start by um, briefly considering the power that TC exercise when they select facts and tell the truth about past atrocities. 
To illustrate the effects of such selectivity, I will read the reports authored by the two uh, commission in Sierra Leone and Liberia in the context of a broader discussion on the causes of resource wars. And these terms indicate violent conflict in resource-endowed countries in the global south, so uh, such as Sierra Leone and Liberia. But let's start with facts and threat commission. So threat commission are described uh, as fact-finding institution established during a period of transition from armed conflict to peace or authoritarian government to democracy to um, recover the truth about um, severe and widespread acts of uh, violence. Uh, within the transitional justice field, uh, throughout has a twofold function. On the, uh, at the individual level, the establishment of truth and the acknowledgement of the status of victim um, are intended to facilitate closure. At the collective level, truth telling uh, aims to develop a shared account of the past and to be the foundation for a more stable and democratic society. However, a number of legal scholars have drawn attention to the partial view of the uh, past that is produced by this and other accountability institution. Uh, this scholarship has challenged the quality of the thread produced, which rather than being universal or impartial, is often the result of contingent political dynamics. And indeed, the decision to focus on certain um, actors, uh, certain abuses, shapes the type of threat produced. The result is, of course, that by telling a certain story about the past, other stories are left outside the official narrative, contributing to a partial understanding of violence, victimhood, and responsibility, as Valeria has just discussed in her presentation in relation to El Salvador. So building upon these insights, I'm interested in exploring how through telling by the two commissions in Sierra Leone and Liberia established um, narratives about violent conflict in those countries and how those narratives uh, displace questions of resource distribution, dispossession, socioeconomic inequalities and exploitation at the root of those conflicts. So, why um, focusing on resource extraction? So uh, as some of you might know, there is a rich debate in the political sciences over the mechanism linking natural resource, natural resource wealth and civil war, which is part of a broader discussion on the uh, causes of violent conflict. So within this context, um, a successful explanation, and by successful, I mean, um, that became quite uh, dominant in policy and institutional circles has been the so-called resource curse thesis. So we can distinguish two um, approaches within this theory. The first puts an emphasis on greed, and you can see here the uh, book authored by Paul Collier, The Bottom Billion. So Paul Collier is a famous political scholar uh, who argues that economic interests are a key driving force behind rebellion and civil war. So uh, he argues um, that, uh, I'm quoting, some societies are more prone to conflict than others because they offer more inviting prospects, economic prospects for rebellion, such as large deposit of natural resources. In the case of Sierra Leone, you can think about diamond reserve or timber in Liberia, oil in other countries. 
The second approach emphasizes how dysfunctional resource governance by corrupt political elite is a factor leading to grievances, possibly escalating to uh, armed conflict. So here, the nexus be between resource wealth and conflict is explained uh, through the model of the failed or weak state, uh, where local elite uh, use violence to control natural resources and the benefits associated with their exploitation. So of course, the resource curse is not the only game in town. There are other approaches that have emerged in recent years to shed light on the complexities of uh, grievances in resource-rich countries, the historical foundations of those conflicts, and also the interplay of local and global economic processes. So such voices argue that the research course offers a biased, unsophisticated explanation of violence um, in the global south. And generally two critiques are made. The first one is that this theory is based upon a um, commodity determinism or resource determinism, which ignores the structural dimension of maldistribution and poverty in the global south, as well as the role of external actors, notably former colonial powers, uh, transnational corporation and international financial institution in producing these problems. And the second, the resource curse is based upon a view of the global south, uh, and here I'm quoting, as a place of complete lack of control and disorder, whose inhabitants, by some irrational logic of nature, have found themselves uh, endowed with resources that cannot or do not know how to deal with in an orderly manner. And here I'm quoting Professor Lairidat. So in other words, this theory is based upon a colonial fantasy which imagines those who live in resource-rich uh, countries in the global south as lacking power and agency. So I think that this critique offers compelling arguments to reconsider some of the assumptions that have influenced the TC engagement with the conflicts in Sierra Leone and Liberia. And so I'm going to move now uh, to those uh, specific contexts. So since Sierra Leone, I mentioned, is a country with a rich diamond reserve, a popular explanation of that conflict focused on the competition for seizing control over diamond uh, producing region by African rebel groups and leaders. And here you can see the picture of uh, Charles Taylor, who was the Liberian president and who founded the Revolutionary United Front, which was this armed uh, group that um, fought, uh, started a, a war against the uh, legitimate Sierra Leone government. So the TC in Sierra Leone uh, sought to challenge the, or at least complement this narrative. So Professor William Shebas, who was one of the TC commissioner, claimed that the conflict was brought on by internal contradiction, not greedy outsiders. So he maintained that the origin of the conflict in Sierra Leone were to be traced to domestic factors, namely widespread corruption and bad resource governance. In a similar way, the TC account focuses on the local government and its failure to regulate the diamond sector before and during the conflict. So even though the TC draws attention to uh, transnational networks established by rebel groups and a business partner to manage the illicit trade, the blame is ultimately put on the Sierra Leonean government and its weak governance system, which enabled, uh, according to the commission, uh, Charles Taylor and uh, the Roof to benefit economically from this illicit trade. 
So we can see uh, that while the TC refused um, uh, the idea that greed was the motivating factor behind the war, it offers still a simplified account of the relationship between global extra extractivism and conflict by focusing on the local drivers of the war. In this case, the mismanagement of natural resources by the government of Sierra Leone and the responsibility of corrupt African leaders. So what are the effects of framing illegal resource exploitation as a local dysfunction? What do we see and what becomes unseen? Uh, so to answer this question, I will consider two issues addressed by the TC. Um, the first one is um, uh, accountability for human rights committed in the context of resource extraction. So there's been, um, there've been a number of reports authored by NGOs and UN body documenting how illegal resource extraction in situation of armed conflict is associated with atrocity perpetrated by rebel groups to um, gain access um, to resource rich areas. So in this context, emphasis is often put on the commission of serious violations of human rights violations of international humanitarian law and international criminal law, such as killing, torture, rape, forced displacement. So you can see here the reports by Global Witness, who is a quite a famous NGO that was quite uh, involved in documenting those kind of abuses and apologies for the disturbing image, but I think this indicates well, what kind of how the dominant human rights discourses has been involved uh, and has been limited to highly visible atrocities uh, perpetrated by local actors being members of the military groups or security forces. So if we take a closer look at the report authored by the Liberian TC, we see how this narrative is reproduced through its practice. So the TC mandate included um, also um, establishing accountability for economic crimes. And this is often regarded as um, a welcome development by uh, transitional justice uh, scholars as a move forward from violations of civil and political rights. However, um, at least with regards to resource extraction, the cases discussed by the TC focus on atrocities perpetrated by security forces hired by logging companies, so killing, rape, forced displacement, and this uh, include episodes where physical harm was inflicted, inflicted um, by local actors against the bodies of the victims. Um, but as other scholars have argued, uh, the reduction of violence to the visible comes at the expenses of an engagement with deeply rooted injustices, socioeconomic inequalities and poverty uh, uh, and marginalization of mining communities during the war and before the war, and also issues of land contamination, environmental degradation um, resulting from resource extraction are also displaced. And also this approach, as others have argued, distracts from the culpability of those who benefited from the system of exploitation, even though they may be located far away from the crime scene. So uh, what we may call the slow and structural violence of resource extraction is left largely uh, unaddressed. So a second issue I want to briefly uh, touch upon um, is the uh, remaking of the post-conflict state. So in addition of providing accountability for past abuses, the TC in Liberia and Sierra Leone uh, sought to prevent their recurrence by transforming resource governance in the post-conflict state. 
So as discussed before, the government failure to exercise effective control over its uh, natural resources because of corruption, patronage system, and absence of the rule of law is uh, considered to be at the root of these wars. So on this basis, a correlation between transparent, accountable resource governance and peace building is um, identified as the way forward. So both in Liberia and Sierra Leone, the TC recommended reinforcing the state control over borders and extractive uh, region uh, to avoid smuggling and increasing transparency as a way to fight corruption of the local government. So for instance, the government in Sierra Leone was asked to publish how diamond revenues uh, were spent by the government or how uh, the um, licenses uh, were allocated. So as we know, uh, accountability, transparency, and rule of law are uh, the key component of a liberal approach to peace building, which has dominated the international agenda since the end of the Cold War. The assumption here is that the liberal government, which effectively manages the natural resource sector in a way that supports economic development, will ensure peace and security. So law reforms have to be implemented by the uh, post-conflict state in order to create a climate of stability conducive of foreign private investment, which will generate what are known as peace dividends. But however, as other scholars have pointed out, transitional justice uh, needs to be understood then as a part of a global project aimed at remaking the post-conflict state in liberal terms. And we have some of those uh, uh, scholars coming in the next uh, seminar. So of course, this project is problematic in different ways. For what concern resource governance, resuming resource extraction and spurring economic growth without addressing grievances at the root of this conflict is a receipt for failure. Um, in Sierra Leone and Liberia, the TC recommendation did not correct inequalities created by the past governance of natural resources and only marginally challenged the transfer of wealth and power from local communities. So in other words, they addressed what we might call the symptoms, such as lack of transparency, corruption, rather than the structural dimensions of resource exploitation and relationship with conflict. So uh, to wrap up and conclude, I mean, the third pre presentation sought to illustrate how threat seeking by, um, by the TC in Sierra Leone and Liberia selected and reconstructed facts of resource-driven war, particularly their underlying causes. And on that basis, it allocated responsibility for arms. Uh, paying attention to the process by which this institution framed the threat about resource wars, enables to make visible the actors and forms of violence that were condemned and those that were not. So what this uh, presentation also indirectly suggests is that international law as deployed and interpreted by this institution is not just a passive recipient of problematic theories such as the resource course uh, that I discussed, but is also involved in shaping perceptions about violence in the global south. So in doing so, certain distributive consequences are normalized and even legitimized through legal practices. So what might uh, change, what might happen if we change the lens through which we view the interrelation between international law, conflict and extractivism? So I'm going to end with that question and thank you for your attention. Thank you both. That was really marvelous. I think um, 
both of you really showed in such a clear way, um, a very clear description of the production of truth by truth commissions and the question of both how the truth is framed and produced and what is at stake in the framing and production of a certain kind of truth in that commission. And I, so I really appreciated in Valeria's paper, um, the way that you juxtaposed two rival accounts of the truth, the Truth Commission's version and the tapestry version to show what is elided um, by the Truth Commission or what difference it makes depending on where you stand when you tell the story of the conflict. And then Eliana, I thought that was a very powerful presentation of the way that certain tropes of colonial developmentalism get reproduced in the regeneration of the truth about a conflict in a way that I think both of you were showing that there's a that the generation of truth by truth commissions um, localize causes of conflict and can't make visible the global causes and the structural causes or don't make visible. And so I guess um, if I were going to allow myself the chair's privilege of asking your question, which I won't, but I will rhetorically, but I don't expect you to answer it. I guess I would say to you, is there a difference then in the possibilities of a nationally generated truth commission versus an internationally generated one? Or is, I mean, especially thinking about the attempt in settler colonial states to have truth commissions. Um, so is there anything that becomes more possible when it's not an international body compared to when, it's, when it is? But um, Valeria Miguel Andres asks you, I'm going to paraphrase his question slightly. Um, okay. He says, he says how, how should the bottom-up view of facts be taken on board by truth commissions? But I guess I would say to you, can the bottom-up view of facts be taken on board by truth commissions? And I guess, Eliana, the, the parallel question to you would be, is there a way that structural causes could be fed in? Or is there a structural problem with truth commissions so that structural causes are not? visible. Thank you. Um, thank you, Miguel, for that um, really important question. I've struggled with that myself because truth commission reports have a very particular structure. So they're based on facts. So the problem is not recording or documenting um, that a massacre happened, that such, you know, that an atrocity happened. Problem is first the framing and then um, what you were saying about bottom up, for me, a very good example of what happens when, um, when, it, when even transitional justice and human rights groups try to say, okay, um, let's give it a shot to a local or traditional process. I think Phil Clark has an excellent book on the Rwandan, uh, if I pronounce it correctly, I really struggle. I think it's Gachaka Courts in Rwanda. And his book is an ethnographic account and he really details how this, um, in a very similar way of um, like Eliana was explaining how this local process was totally being measured against human rights standards, against the human rights language. So in a way it's a point of standpoint and paradigms. And um, 
so it's not so much about the facts because everyone can agree on that. It's um, how you look at it from what position, from what worldview and what, and what accounts, because the Salvador, the truth commissioners for El Salvador, they did went and talk to the people in, in El Mozote, in the Sumpul River, um, they were there, but you read the report and it shows how much it matters from where you're thinking about these things. There's a question uh, just to follow on from that before I give you the microphone, Eliana, uh, about El Mojote, the El Mojote case, Valeria, um, because Tati Weisberg wants to know how did that particular case impact upon the Truth Commission's story, I think she's asking. Um, I guess that's her, what was that, what was the impact of that particular incident? I mean, El Mojote is such a national trauma. It's a horrible, horrible story. Um, but what happened a lot with, um, so about the impact. So the impact of the Truth Commission in El Salvador is, it's very two different stories, how the UN remembers it and it's staff and people involved, how they celebrate it and how Salvadoran people think about it. Because I, I was born in El Salvador and I still have family there. And um, I, I used to ask my parents, so what do you think about the Truth Commission or my aunts? And they were like, what? Yeah, it happened. There's no impact. So people remember the events, the violence, the, the trauma of it. But, you know, the, it, the disparity between how we celebrated overseas and how people really remember the war and they need to tell the, their stories um, fairly. Um, it's quite different. And then I, I noticed that you also had a question on how Salvadoran society can be accounted for that. It's really hard and I can't speak for how the whole accountable um, society, but I do think that some people are doing, are trying to be aware of the deeper roots of the problem. Um, but it's hard when there's so much um, going on when, when what it's really needed is structural change and in a country that really depends on the power of the United States. Um, it's sometimes really hard to, to do things differently. Mm. But, so thank you for your question. Thank you both Miguel and, and Tati. Let, uh, let us turn to Eliana for a moment. Eliana, there's the variation on the question that I posed to you, but also um, Maydot Tesfe has a question. I'm sorry about the pronunciation. I'm sure that's not correct. But uh, it's a question about when um, economic interests and deeper atrocities like genocide coincide. Uh, and she's talking about um, when those things happen when one thing is related closely to the other, uh, what does a transitional justice paradigm do in that instance, I suppose? I'm, I'm not doing perfect justice to the question. It's an imperfect medium, but let's go with that anyway. Yes, thank you, Sonia. I will uh, just answer briefly to the previous question. So uh, if there is a way that structural causes can be accounted for or made visible in uh, uh, third commission. And I think that um, um, selectivity and uh, third telling is, um, uh, I mean, truth telling is a political process, right? And uh, it ne necessarily raise, um, involves some selectivity. So uh, the question is then what stories you, you tell? And I think that um, 
perhaps um, a way to make it more political and less legalistic as the process might, um, might um, help to account for the structure and for the, um, the root causes, right? Because uh, the, 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 the real limit is when you try to translate certain um, forms of violence into the legal form, the legal language, and that's the, the limit. Uh, and that's what I, um, what I see in Sierra Leone and Liberia. So the human rights discourse uh, to account for, you know, slow structural violence or, um, yeah, so I think, um, and broader external economic processes, for instance. Um, so the other question about um, economic interest and genocide, um, I mean, um, there's been, of course, more, in, more attention to the interrelations and the economic sides of uh, atrocities in recent years and attention for uh, violations of uh, socioeconomic rights uh, in the context of transitional justice. So uh, that's not new. Uh, but on the other side, uh, there are, uh, again, a key limitation when you want to use the law to account for economic interests that are, of course, often not just located that cannot be localized as we, we, we mentioned before, right? So if uh, everything is the problem is localized and understood as a local dysfunction, um, even when we use the language of economic crimes, we, we kind of fail to understand the structural issues there. And, um, and also look at the past and how those patterns of dispossession and economic violence in fact have been long, uh, happening since long time. So it's not mm. just an accident. Uh, it's not just, uh, you know, something um, that can be also uh, localized geographically and temporally, I think also, right? So um, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely problematic. That's uh, fantastic. Let me just um, pose one more question and hold people for three minutes while you each say one thing about it. There's, before I do that though, I just like to notice that many of the questions are asking implicitly a question which I think we should remember to come back to at the end of the series, which is when we uh, offer descriptions of the work of the Truth Commission in a very critical register, is there the possibility of the remediation of those problems or is the Truth Commission a quote unquote bad institution? So I'm, I'm exaggerating the question, but many of the questions are about, well, how do we fix this and how do we fix that? But I suppose that the premise is, can it be fixed or are Truth Commissions and or is transitional justice uh, a problematic enterprise which which may not be able to be remediated. But I suppose um, the one question that I just posed to you both, if you wanna take one minute each to address it is the question posed by Cecilia Jimenez, because I think it's quite an interesting question from what I know of the work of both of you, which is basically about the way that the jurisdictional basis, if you like, of truth commissions in human rights law and international humanitarian law, to what extent does that basis of authority cause some of the problems that you're describing? I'm just gonna say 
it's spot on that because it's it's I mean it's to simplify but it's a huge part of the problem um, and that's what in the first instance as well got me research um, well interested in in truth commissions because I when you approach them from from the transitional justice literature or more orthodox literature have all the answers truth commission has does everything you know you can see it in the Colombian truth commission they just do everything um but when you start thinking about the role of law and you take international law seriously a whole new world opens and yeah and you know if there's interest i would be really 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 cool i would say to see more people taking 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 that the question of international law and truth commission seriously so thank you for that Wonderful questions. Um, Cecilia uh, says she was working with the Truth, Justice and Reconciliation Commission in the Philippines. So um, we may have to make contact with you, Cecilia, to have a longer conversation. Eliana, your, your last word on that question. Yes, thank you, Cecilia. Um, I think that, um, yeah, as Valeria said, um, the, 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 the idea that human rights and IHL are the uh, jurisdictional basis of, uh, for the mandate of TC is problematic. So my question is, for instance, regarding resource exploitation, how many things are just um, made invisible by focusing and using these frameworks, right? So for instance, would it be different if we used the foreign investment law or international trade law to discuss how uh, resource extraction is associated with atrocities in conflict settings? things like uh, would that be different or um, yeah I think this is um, this is definitely uh, I think a concern for international lawyers uh, as we are and um, and yeah really when I say by changes the changing the lenses it means also perhaps uh, expanding our horizons and not just uh, looking at the law and other laws right uh, corporate law and what what uh, what's their role in shaping uh, transitional justice process and violence before. So yeah, that's definitely yeah, a question, big question for us. Let me then draw the proceedings to a close by saying thank you very much to all of the attendees for coming. And I'd like to say thank you too very much to Eliana and Valeria because I learned so much from listening to you, listening to you both and um, I really remember the freshness of that paper, Eliana, that I read, and I'm very much looking forward to the book and Valeria also to your emergent work uh, that's coming out in published pieces, published, published tastes, and will come out as a thesis in the not too distant future. So I would normally say to everyone, join me in offering you both a round of applause, but seeing as we can't do that, uh, please accept my thanks in place of a round of applause. Thank you very much. And I hope that we see you all next time on 21st of April. So hopefully we'll see many of you back there. Thank you and thank you, Connor. Bye. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I. L-A-H podcast.